Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a Ford Frick Award winner. This Hall of Famer has been calling San Francisco Giants games since 1997. He's known around the country for his long run on Sunday Night Baseball. Most importantly, he was in the booth when I made my ba- debut in Baltimore. Welcome to the program, John Miller. Really? I didn't know that. See, I did John- your- Go ahead. I did your first game? You did my first game, and I my first question to you I had on my on my uh, desk here is, I wonder if he remembers he did my first game, because I just went yesterday and I listened to it, and it was uh, Baltimore, and I forget, it was August, later, third week in August, 1992, and I, and I, uh, it was Arthur Rhodes on the mound, and it was John Miller on the call. So did I also do your first base hit or hits? Well, first it, was home my, run? it was my first. Uh, I actually think you did my first home run, too. No, it was my first at bat, first game, and I got to hit my first at bat. Oh, all right. So, so anyway. And then I say, wait, well, hey, watch for this kid. I guarantee you he's going to have a long, brilliant career. Uh, of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> no, but it was that it was that back when the first I was the first third generation, so it was the big deal. So you remember you said, "Oh, there's never been three generations in the game." And I remember I remember getting my hit, getting to first base. Randy Milligan's playing first base. Looks at me and says, "Kid, good luck. You got two on two thousand nine hundred ninety nine to go." I looked at Randy Milligan. I remember how I was thinking at that age, and I thought, Randy. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm going to get way more hits than that. <laughs> and then then reality hit me. <laughs> and uh, but but it, it was a fond memory. And yes, you were on. My first call. So wow. I, th- I thought wow. that was cool. Cool. I, I, wanna... I was at a I was at a dinner one night in spring training, maybe before the pandemic. So maybe four years ago. And Robin Young, Hank Aaron, Bob Uecker was at the. Bud Seelig's house in, in Arizona. And I get to talking with Robin Young, and I said, you know, in 1974, the first game I ever broadcast was in spring training with, with Oakland. And Oakland played the Milwaukee Brewers in Mesa, this old wooden ballpark called Rendezvous Park. And you played in that game. So, I don't know, he was 18 or 19 years old. And he started thinking about it. He says, you know, he says, I don't remember specifically that game, but I do remember that I came across and we had a shortstop named Tim Johnson. He was the regular shortstop, but because he was a veteran, he didn't want to travel across the valley. They played in Sun City and the other side of the valley at the time. So they sent Robin Yount, the, the, the 18-year-old rookie, over to 
Mesa to play the athletics and have the long bus ride. So he said, that was probably my first game. It was near the beginning of spring training, probably the first. So I said, well, whether it is or not, I'm going with that story from now on. So, uh, so I did your first game and I did Robin Yount's first exhibition game as my first game. And uh, I got a lot of grief from my family, my mom, my dad, my brother, whatever. They're all listening in back in the Bay Area. And uh, Robin Yount came up and I started talking about him a little bit, some background on him and said, uh, he's a very talented uh, young kid. And, you know, my, my parents called me after the game. They said, young kid, you're 22 years old. Who are you calling a young kid? So <laughs> I just I was just trying to sound like a, like I'd been around for a while, I guess. But uh, anyway, so that was a, a pretty good double play combination. You and Robin, yeah, that could have that was pretty good. So. I love it. And I'm uh, by the way, I'm a huge fan. Robin, I played against Robin for a few years, but we, he was he's he's one of those where I call him a crossover. I always get I get my dad's generation and my generation. It's like there's guys I played with, and then there's guys that I crossed over from dad's generation. Robin was one of those, but what a good guy. We had him on we had him on the show about uh a few months back, but super, super good dude. Um John, I grew up in Philadelphia, and some of my my vivid you know, I talk about this all the time, but obviously from my career, I have a lot of, of great memories. Uh, most people that play in the big leagues for a long time do. But I, also growing up, uh, you know, with my dad in Philadelphia, him playing on those all those Phillies teams, a lot of my great memories are from my childhood when, I, when it wasn't my job to, to go play baseball. Those, those great Philly teams. When I think of baseball, when I shut my eyes, Harry Callis is in my is in my head for all those years of calling Phillies games. Uh, you're in that group now that Harry that that legendary those voices that when you when you close your eyes, you hear that a John Miller voice. That's baseball. That's my during my career. You 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 were you know every night every Sunday night baseball. There's Johnny Miller and, and Joe, and um, I don't know what what does it mean to has it gotten to that point in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm one of those guys. Obviously you got Ford Frick, you're in the hall of fame, uh, major league baseball. Do you think of yourself like that? And secondly, when John Miller closes his eyes, who pops in, what voice pops in that, that, that rings baseball for you? Well, uh, I, I appreciate the, the comments and, uh, and the thoughts and, it, it is something, of course, that I have no control over. And it literally is something that I don't think about because for me, it's always about that game and trying not to screw that game up to get it right. And you know, I'm, I'm still still looking for that, that one perfect game. But uh, for me, it's about enjoying the game that day and having all the, you know, doing the work ahead of time so that I, I know all the people who were in that game, things I should know about them, what's going on in the, in the pennant races and in, in baseball in general. And, and that's also the fun of it because it's always new every day and it's always a challenge every day. Uh, and and I, I suppose it was that way as a player as well. You always had the pitcher you were facing that day and the work you wanted to do uh, getting ready for that game. So uh, there, are, there are times after all these years uh, you know, my first year was 1974 with Oakland. So what's that? Uh, let's see. Uh, 
112 years ago was my first game. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but World the, Series year. They won the World they, Series that year. They, and they won that World Series for the third year in a row. So it was kind of a it was pretty a pretty good break for a 22-year-old guy to get that job at that time, that's for sure. But uh, after all that time, you get home from a road trip, and then, of course, there's always a game. you got to head to the ballpark that night. Well, there are times where I don't feel like heading to the ballpark that night. <laughs> I've been home for a while, and I'd like to just have a day off. So, uh, But you have to go to the ballpark. You have to go to that game. So the thing that gets you going is on the way to the ballpark that night, uh, you start thinking about what do I need to know? Who do I need to see? Maybe I need to see Brandon Crawford about a play that he made and find out what was going on in that play. So I have a little background on it. Maybe I can get a story out of it, an anecdote for that night's broadcast. I need to speak to the manager. I need to speak to the manager of the other team. Maybe I need to go see Brett Boone and find out uh, how he likes this ballpark or how he does against this pitcher. Or I heard that maybe uh, he was having a little hamstring issue. And what's the latest on that? So you, you get all of these things going on your way to the ballpark, the things that you want to check in on and ask about before that game. So it gets you going. It's always fresh. It's always new. And that's the real fun of it. Baseball is every day, and it's always new. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Now, maybe on a given night, it's not a good game. And we broadcasters hate that when we actually have to earn our money. Because when you have a bad game or you have a bad team that's not in a pennant race, that's where you earn your money. And, uh, and I was just with Pat Hughes, who's going into the Hall of Fame this year, the, the longtime radio voice of the Cubs, an excellent ball player, and he, uh, uh, excellent broadcaster who's so popular in Chicago. And uh, Maria Jacinto with the Giants had this idea for the Sunday game at Oracle Park. She says, what if Pat Hughes came over and did an inning with you on our broadcast, and then maybe later you go over onto the Cubs broadcast and do an inning with him? And so I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. And, and Pat thought it was a good idea, so we did that. And uh, that was just so fun to go on with Pat, who grew up in the Bay Area. So we grew up Giants fans. He was in the South Bay down near San Jose. Uh, I was in the East Bay in, in Hayward. And so we have a lot of the similar memories about those broadcasters. You were asking, that was the second part of your question, uh, because I think about Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. They were the... Uh, the great voices of the Giants, they're both in the Hall of Fame. They had great voices, memorable voices. Russ Hodges was the guy who did, years before that, Bobby Thompson's home run, one of the most famous calls in, in sports history in this country, not just baseball, where the Giants came from 13 and a half games out in August, 44 games to go. They were 13 and a half out. And on the last day of the year, they tied the Dodgers for first place and then had a best of three playoff to see who was going to go in the World Series. And the Giants down in the bottom of the ninth inning. It looks like they were done. Four to one. They get a run. They get a rally going. And then Bobby Thompson hits a three-run homer, and they win it. And Russ Hodges goes nuts. You know, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win. You know, so on and so forth. So uh, Russ captured one of the great moments in baseball history. And then he moved to San Francisco with the Giants. And then I grew up with him. So he taught me the game. He taught Pat Hughes the game and Lon Simmons as well. And because the Giants in the 60s, when I was a kid, were always in a pennant race with the Dodgers. And, of course, they were the rivals. 
The Dodgers were on a very powerful station, KFI in Los Angeles in those days. And you could hear it at nighttime in San Francisco, like a local station. The Giants played mostly day games when they were home at Candlestick Park because, you know, people don't like to play night games at Candlestick. So we'd know how the Giants game turned out. It was a pennant race. It was September. And then we'd tune in the Dodgers game that night. And I remember in 1962, I was 10 years old. It was, it was one of my first real uh, enduring memories of baseball and being a baseball fan. And when the Giants would hit a home run, Russ Hodges would say, tell it, bye-bye, baby. And that was his call. And he always kind of joked about it and said, uh, it's, it's corny and whatnot. But uh, he came up with it in New York. And it was a Broadway play, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And that was a song in the play. And Russ, one day, the, the guy hit a home run. He said, well, as uh, Lorelei Lee sang in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, bye-bye, baby. And the fans liked it. So, and he took that with him to San Francisco. He didn't just do it for Giants homers, though, at the time. He did it whenever there was a home run. And Giants fans told him, says, well, that's great. We love Bye Bye Baby, but we don't want you to do it when the Dodgers hit a home run or the Reds or the Pirates or whatever. We only want you to do it when the Giants hit a home run. So he got so much feedback on that from the fans, he changed it to just for a Giants home run. Now, Lon Simmons worked with him. And they were hooked up when the Giants came to San Francisco in 58. And Lon had a big, booming, bassy voice. I don't know if you ever talked to Lon. I was intimidated to talk to Lon. You know, I said, uh, hi, John, how you doing? You know, and I'm like, oh, good, good. I got to go. So, uh, but Lon, he was like six foot five and, and this big, booming voice. But the Giants had hit a home run. said, way back, way back. Tell it goodbye. You know, and it was just, you get goosebumps for bye-bye baby or tell it goodbye as a Giants fan. So now when I'm 10 years old, I hear these Dodger games at night in the pennant race. And Vince Scully, uh, who I didn't like, of course, because he was a Dodger. He was a Dodger broadcaster. And he wasn't Russ and Lon, the guys I was growing up with. And there was a home run and he says, oh, way back and she's gone. You know, and I remember thinking, that's it. That's all you've got. No bye-bye baby. Just she's gone. No wonder he's working in a jerkwater town like LA. He'll never get out of there. I guarantee you. Now I was 10 years old, a little immature and I, you know, didn't know anything. And that was the one thing I was right about, uh, you know, 50 years later, there he was still in LA. So uh, the rest of it, as I, as I matured a little bit and started thinking, you know, I'd like to be in broadcasting myself. I'd like to broadcast baseball. And I started listening with a more mature ear to broadcasters, including Vinny. And then I realized, wow, that is so good. I, I remember driving, I was visiting my grandmother in Eugene, Oregon in the 60s, probably the late 60s. And then I was driving back to the Bay Area. It, it's a, you know, I don't know, eight, nine hour drive from Eugene. And the Dodger game was on, they played the Cubs. I'll never forget it because it's the first time I ever heard Vinny do a whole game as, you know, more of an adult. And I didn't really care about the game. Uh, I didn't care about either team so much. But he had such great stories. He started telling a story about Don Kessinger and how he was struggling in his career and was having a hard time staying. He was bouncing back and forth, majors and minors, couldn't hit. And somebody suggested that he become a switch hitter. So he thought, well, I better do something or I'm not going to last in the big leagues. So he became a switch hitter 
and actually was pretty good at it. And he had said that that really saved his career. That's why he was still there all these years later and had become an all-star shortstop. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's so cool. Now I'm interested. I'm interested in Kessinger. I'm interested in this game. And, and Vinny has made me interested, and he painted such a, a great picture. And I always felt bad for, uh, for those who only knew Vinny as a TV announcer because I used to hear him as a radio announcer, and he was so good at it. The same thing with Harry Carey. You know, they're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum in their style, Vinny and Harry. But ultimately, I always feel like they took you the same way. They gave you the game, and they gave you a vivid picture. And Harry was the same thing. We all remember him late in his career. He had a stroke and coming back from the stroke and all of that kind of stuff. And people still loved him and still cherished him. But earlier in his career, he was primarily a radio guy. And he was a great radio guy. It gave you a great picture of the game. And uh, so I always was, you know, felt fortunate that I remember both of those guys in their heyday as radio guys at the height of their powers. And, uh, you know, the Giants played the last game at the old, old Bush Stadium, which had been called Sportsman's Park, which, you know, it was an old time park when Stan Musial broke in in the early 40s. And they changed it to Bush Stadium because Augie Bush, the, the brewery, uh, bought the team in the 50s. And they said to the commissioner, listen, uh, could we name the stadium, Budweiser Stadium, you know, the, the Cubs, Phil Wrigley owns the Cubs and they call it Wrigley Field. And they said, well, uh, we don't allow that. You can't just name it after a product. Uh, Wrigley, that's his name. So he named it after himself, you know, the Wrigley Field. He said, so uh, my name is Bush, so we could call it Bush Stadium. He says, oh, of course, if that's what you want, go ahead. Now, under his sleeve, he had the, uh, the knowledge that the commissioner did not have, that they had created a new beer that was about to be released that baseball season called Bush Bavarian Beer. So he said, okay, well, we're going to call it Bush Stadium. And, and that's what they did with their new Bush beer uh, coming up. But the final game in that ballpark was in the, the 60s. And the Giants were the team. And right in the middle of the, in the season, they played the last game. And I have a tape that some people at KMOX gave me of the ninth inning of that game. Harry Carey doing the radio, the final game in that historic ballpark, where he'd been doing games for 26, 27 years. And Willie Mays came up. And there's Harry Carey, the great broadcaster. And Willie Mays, the great superstar, one of the greatest of all time. And he starts talking about Willie Mays in that ballpark and how of all the players, the great players who played there over the years, the, the visiting player who had the most success and did the most damage to the Cardinals was Willie Mays. And he starts recounting some of those incredible moments that Mays had there. Meanwhile, while Harry's doing this, Mays kept fouling pitches away. And it was a long at bat. And we broadcasters appreciate that when we can tell some stories and the guy has a long at bat to let us tell the whole thing. And then all of a sudden the pitch came in and Willie hit a home run and Harry did it like it was a Cardinal, you know, it could be, it might be, it is Willie May, you know, and, and it was just so cool. And that's why I asked if they could send me the, a copy of that. So uh, that was the last game in that ballpark. And for me, that was Harry Carey at the height of his powers. 
And he brought you the game, and he made you a fan. Vin Scully made you a fan. Russ Hodges, Lon Simmons. And they were also telling us about the ex exploits here in the Bay Area of Willie Mays. You couldn't help but be a fan with Willie Mays there. He was, he was like a superhero, and, uh, uh, and especially when you're a kid, because uh, you think he is a superhero. He's, he's larger than life, and he can do things that mere mortals can't do. So... Uh, Anyway, so that's, for me, that uh, I was the time and the place and those broadcasters that made me a fan, and, and I'm very grateful to to all of them. That is, and, and you're you're talking about all these, these stories and remembering them verbatim, and that's what we do as kids. We remember stuff. I, I mean, it's so cool hearing those stories. Never met uh, Harry Carey. Obviously, listen to him. Uh, he's a legend. He's everywhere. You can you can listen to him anytime you want. And just get on the internet. But Vince Scully, uh, talked to a decent amount of times when I'd go to Dodger Stadium, and and you're right. He was such a storyteller. He did it by himself. And what I remember when you're playing uh, as hitters, a lot of the time when we make an out, we go right into the right into usually off the dugout on the visiting, you know, on, on a road trip, usually the clubhouse is right off the dugout. A lot of times right after an out, we'll, we'll whip right up into the clubhouse because the, usually the, back in those, back in there, you know, that was the nineties for me, nineties, early two thousands, our video guys sitting there all set up. What do you want to see? I, I need to see that last pitch, but sometimes at Dodger stadium, I'd come in and I'd come, you know, to see that at bat, I just went there and, and Vin's still talking about a story about me when I was 12. <laughs> I'm going, Vin, no, no, that's wrong. You know, I'm sitting there, but he had my attention and you're right. He was such a storyteller. Uh, he was amazing. And it seemed like he could go on for days at a time and just run one story into the next. And that's a lot of preparation, you know, doing this for as long as you've done it, the preparation. You know, I was a baseball player my whole life, and all of a sudden, you know, I started off doing this podcast. And wow, at the beginning, I kind of didn't know what you know. I was kind of a fish out of water. It's been a it's been a learning process, believe me. But I really appreciate your side of the mic, what you've done for so many years, and the preparation that goes into your work. Uh, that as a player, when I was just there to give you a soundbite here and there or do an interview. I didn't have that appreciation. I don't know that players do because they just doesn't don't know what's going on. You talk about those rides to the ballpark on a daily basis uh, and thinking, what am I going to come up with today? Well, all right. I got your brain starts going. You go, all right. I'm, you talk about, we'll go down and talk to Crawford. Talk to him about that hamstring, how it's doing. Because yeah, I'm going to need some, there's going to be some dead time up there in the booth, especially if it's not a good game. And I've got all these stories, which which is uh, remarkable. They come across so natural when we're, we, the fan are listening to you, but you don't think about, wow, this all started on his, on his car ride to the ballpark today. Those are really cool things that I think fans don't get to hear every day. Well, I think the, uh, uh, and for me, it's mainly that it keeps it fresh. People say, how do you, how do you, you, you still enjoy the game? I mean, after all these years, and, and yes, because of that, because it's always new every day. And as you know, you, you know, like anybody who's ever played the game, uh, better than anybody, uh, you can be red hot, you're seeing the ball, you're having success, you're hitting home runs, two hits tonight, three hits the next night, 
and you know for a week and a half whatever how you, you want that role to just keep going as long as possible and then the whole narrative changes all of a sudden you you have an 0 for 4 you you strike out three times and, and now you just can't buy it day after day it's it's a confounding thing and when you're the player and i've talked to so many guys about this uh, over the years uh, you go into a slump and all of a sudden you're you're one for 20 or you know oh for 16 or whatever and those things happen even to the best players um the players have all told me you're not thinking at that point well this is just that's the way the game is and i'll come out of it and then i'll i'll get hot again most guys when they're they're looking for answers and they're looking they're working extra time with the hitting instructors they're looking at videos uh, what am i doing differently what where did I lose my way and whatnot? The one thing that I thought is so cool now, the Giants have Mike Yastrzemski playing for them. And a long time ago, I used to do Red Sox games, 1980, 81, 82. I was in Boston, near the end of the career of Carl Yastrzemski. And, and I think that I may be the only guy, the only broadcaster who did the everyday games for the grandfather and then did the everyday games yeah. for the grandson. I was thinking, and when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of the Boons. I was thinking of you guys. And I, well, but I think you guys were in, in different franchises and whatnot. And there certainly was not a guy who did the everyday games for your grandfather, Ray Boone, and right. then did your games every day. I don't think Dave Niehaus ever did that or, or Skip <laughs> Gary or, or whatever. So, uh, so I was real excited when Mike Yastrzemski came to the Giants because of the connection with his grandfather. And, uh, and I think on the, one of the stories that I never forget about Carl Yastrzemski being at Fenway Park and he's on a roll, he's in one of those tears, you know, he's like for 10 days, you can't get him out. And it was after a Saturday afternoon game at Fenway, everybody's gone. We're just wrapping up our post game show on the radio and they bring out the batting cage. And I'm thinking, this is, I guess they're getting ready for tomorrow's game and they're bringing it out already. They don't want to have to do it tomorrow. I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing. And all of a sudden some people come out and Carl Yastrzemski comes out and he starts taking batting practice again. Now he just played the game. He just hit a home run and a double and had three hits. And now he's taking batting practice. So the next day before the game, I go down to, to the batting cage and ask him about that. And he said, well, when you've got that feel going, you, you want that muscle memory, you want to keep it as long as possible. So I feel like if I can take some more swings while I'm in that zone, maybe that helps with the muscle memory to me to keep repeating all of the things that I seem to be doing so perfectly. And, and I thought, now that is dedication. And it's also sort of a scientific approach to the whole thing how to maximize a hot streak. Because a lot of guys, when they're hot, they don't even want to talk about it. I don't know how you were, but they didn't want yeah. to talk about it. You know, this is, I'm seeing the ball this way and I'm, I'm doing that. And you know, they don't want even to think about it because they're just in that zone. Just let it happen, which is probably good advice for any hitter. But, but Yaz did something a little bit differently in that regard. And, and that, that's part of his legacy that I'll never forget. Well, I think 
you know, that's interesting you say that because certain players took that approach. You know, I never played with Manny Ramirez, but I heard he was that way. Uh, Tony Gwynn, def- I played with Tony for one year in San Diego, definitely that way. Didn't matter uh, how he was going. He was hitting. When I got to the ballpark, he was already up in the cage doing his, his early work off the tee. Um, and it, you talk about, yes, he's in a hot streak. He's hitting after the game. Wow. There were guys that was that was their approach. That was their mental approach to it. And then there were other guys I played with where if you're hot, like you said, stay away from me. Let's not talk about it. For me personally, if I'm in the zone, John, I had a routine I went through every night before the game. It's like especially my Seattle years. There was a time, you know, the game starts at 705 at at, at 652 was my time. I had five minutes and, and Edgar would be in there and Mike Cameron and Ichiro was at 648. But we had our time where we had five minutes just to get loose, like going to hit a couple range balls, not to work on your game, just to get loose before that first at bat. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'd be in there. If I was rolling, I might take three swings and go, I got it. I don't want to mess with what I got right now. I don't want to take too many swings and and work my way out of this streak. Uh, But some guys did. And, it, and it's just it, what makes baseball and hitting, first of all, such a puzzle, so hard. Uh, but it's it's amazing. Some of the great players, how they approached it uh, from the even if you're hot, I'm going to hit all day long where I, I, I would retreat and say, no, I don't want to mess up what I got. So interesting, interesting yeah, that, yeah. that you said that when you talk about uh, great players it, it, and, the, and the Mariners, it brought to mind. And I I think that. I, I don't know that you were there yet in Seattle. Maybe you can can help me out with this uh, because what years? Uh, it, it was sometime in the I'd say the the mid ninety, maybe ninety five, ninety six, somewhere. Yeah, ninety five when they had their when they beat the Yankees. I, I was there. I came up as a rookie in nineteen ninety two. I got traded to the Cincinnati Reds. So that time where it was uh, when they were in the Kingdom and then change it to the new ballpark. They beat the Yankees in that kind of historic moment where Griffey scores. No, I was, I was out of town for that. So go ahead. I came back in 2001. Well, there was a game, you know, sometimes there are games that are just sort of unforgettable games. Like things happen that you'll never forget. And A-Rod was a young guy. He was with the Mariners. Uh, uh, Griffey, you know, junior was already blossoming into a big star and, and beloved even in Baltimore, they loved Ken Griffey, Jr. Uh, Jay Buhner, Edgar Martinez, I mean, it was yeah. a fun team to watch. They they had, they had a lot of studs. You know, Randy Johnson pitching every uh, fifth day, sometimes even a little more often. Uh, and yet they still had some flaws. They, they didn't have a whole lot of pitching besides the big unit in some of those years. But there was a game where A-Rod hit a grand slam. And uh, then in the same inning, uh, somebody with the Orioles hit a grand slam. And now a couple innings later, the the Mariners had another grand slam to <laughs> bit three grand slams or, or whatever it was. And so, and it's, it's a little bit of a sloppy game. Like these, these wild ones can be sometimes. And we go to the bottom of the ninth inning. It's 13 to 10 Seattle. And it was a game where you know, the Orioles were hitting a grand slam. They had a big lead. They blew the lead and a rod. It's a grand slam. Now the Mariners, it was one of those kind of games. And you thought, well, maybe whoever bats last is going to win this game. But now it's kind of in Baltimore, the, it's kind of a, a, a feeling of despair. Like they've 
they've blown this game and they get something going in the bottom of the ninth inning and they end up with the bases loaded two down and they're still behind 13 to 10 and Chris Hoyles, you remember Chris Hoyles? I do the catcher. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a good hitter and uh, Hoyles. And my memory is it, it got to uh, at least two strikes. I don't remember three and two or two, whatever it was. And a long at bat and then boom, grand slam. Team down by three, bottom of the ninth, two down, two strikes, and he hits a grand slam, and they win by one. Now, that's only happened, I don't know, a handful of times in the history of the game. You know, every time I see Gary DeSarcina, uh, who's been a third-base coach in the big leagues for a while now, uh, it, it, I, it, he was either in the game or maybe he's the one who did that. Where, where the Angels were down by three in the bottom of the ninth, and he had a grand slam. So it hasn't happened very very often. But that's a game I'll never forget because it's it's a the, kind of a thing you only probably ever see the one time in, in your lifetime. So uh, uh, And those kind of things kind of happened to, to those Mariners at that time and maybe while you were there as well. They had great players and great talent, great hitters, but sometimes not all that much pitching. So uh, and, and Camden Yards was a place – that you would get exploited if, if your pitching wasn't that good. Yeah, you mentioned Junior, and they loved him in Baltimore. He kind of, he kind of, he was already on the big stage. He'd already arrived, but I think that home run derby at Camden Yards when he hit the, you know, when he hit the building and uh, had his hat on backwards, there was a lot made of that. But I think that's why uh, you mentioned people in Baltimore loved Ken Griffey Jr. I think that was kind of his coming out there. Uh, I, I was the, uh, they, they had asked me that day, the home run derby. And it wasn't a big, uh, you know, they, they televised it. They were just starting to televise it on ESPN, but it was the workout day. It was just part of the workout. And it was in the, in the daytime that, 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 that happened. They didn't put it in prime time. And uh, so I was on the field sort of emceeing the thing for the people in the stadium. And, uh, and so I, I, could not see where it hit. I knew it was a long one, though. And uh, and then we got word back that it had, it hit the warehouse. It had cleared Utah Street and hit the warehouse, which, uh, as far as I know, he's the only one who, still who's ever done it. And uh, and I believe Juan Gonzalez may have been the first guy I ever see who hit the upper deck at left field. You know, it's three decks in left field. Right. And it, it was not like the kingdom where the, those upper decks were out close to that right field wall, which was pretty close anyway. Uh, those upper decks are, are upper and they're way back there. So, I mean, he might've hit it. It would have been a 500 foot ball. It was, and I was standing just to the right of him uh, with my little microphone and, uh, and watched it leave his bat. And that was kind of an unforgettable spot, a vantage point to see a guy hit the ball that well. It was, it was, it kind of took your breath away. So, and that's kind of what is fun about the home run derby. And I also remember Barry Bonds, who was still in Pittsburgh. And uh, in fact, that might have been Barry Bonds' first year with the Giants, now that I think of it, 93, when they had the, it was the second year of Camden Yards, so 93. And Barry was in the home run derby, and he didn't do all that well. Mike Piazza was in it, he didn't do all that well. And, you know, they, they kind of laughed about it and, and whatnot. But for Barry, it was embarrassing. And he never, went in a home run derby again. That was it. So he said, you know, the hell with this. I'm not doing that again. So uh, he, uh, he was saving him, I guess, for the, 
for the real deal. But uh, even when it was at Oracle Park, or at in that time, uh, it was still called Pacific Bell Park, maybe the uh, seventh or eighth season in baseball in the new ballpark here in San Francisco, the All-Star game was here. And Barry did not participate in the Home Run Derby that time either. And I think it was still in his head. Like, it's, it's too embarrassing. If, if, it, if it doesn't happen, then, then I don't want to be involved in it. I'll tell you what. I feel his pain because I did I I did two home run derbies. I got asked my first time. It was in Seattle, Safeco Field, two thousand one. You know, I'm. It's an honor. I get asked to be in the home run derby. You know, I got twenty four home runs at the break. I'm like, oh, this is this is awesome. This is what I've lived for. So I, you know, I, I I'm in it. And back then, the the format was different, John. You remember the format. We didn't hit a thousand home runs, and it wasn't rapid fire. I think they've got the I think they've got the formula down better now. I think it's a, a better product. I think it's better for the fans. But back then, it was like you had outs, and if you hit three or four, you save face. You put on a good show. So I think that's what I did in my first one. I hit three or four. I was in Seattle, so it was my hometown crowd. Uh, Sammy Sosa tied me. And back then, they didn't waste time with you. didn't have a one-on-one tiebreaker. Whoever had more home runs at the break moved on. So Sammy got booed for moving on in Seattle. And anyway, (laughs) I survived my first home run derby, and I had a good time. Because nowadays, I think it's different. I think the kids almost like, uh, they train for the home run derby, so they have an idea. But for me, it was the first time not having that cage around me. It was just a different feeling. Anyway, I I, I don't want to get too long in my my stupid story. But two years later, I get asked to do it again in Chicago. Of course, you know it's an honor for me to get asked to do the home run derby. I go out there and I'm thinking, all right, I'm really going to put on a show this time. I hit zero home runs. It was humiliating. I know exactly what Barry's thinking because as a player, as a participant, it is just an exhibition. It's not a big deal, right, in hindsight. But once you're the player and you stink at, when you go to the plate, I'm telling you it's a different feeling. I, I can't explain it to people because as a competitor, I look at somebody that didn't hit any home runs and I just say, yeah, no big deal. Who cares? You know, this is an exhibition. You got the second half of the season. That's what's important. But I'll tell you, there was something inside me, like, because uh, right after you finish at the home run derby, you've got it. Somebody's got a mic for you. You got to go get interviewed about how you did. And I remember whoever I went to, it's kind of uncomfortable because you hit zero. So I don't know what to say. And I'm kind of like, I just kind of want to leave. I'm like, just just get me off this field. I hate it. This is embarrassing. And I'll tell you, I heard about it the entire second half everywhere I went uh, about how bad of a home run derby I I, I had. You hear it from teammates, which is okay. That's they have the right to to get on you a little bit, but uh, I, I understand uh, Barry's thought process because the logic is it's just a home run derby. Who cares? They want to see Barry Bonds hitting a home run derby. But I'm telling you, a guy that's gone through it <laughs> and didn't have a good result, I I know exactly where he's coming from. Yeah, and that I mean that same day uh, they had the, the like a celebrity home run derby at Camden Yards way back when. And uh, Michael Jordan was there. And this is before he had retired from basketball and decided to try to play professional baseball. And um, Patrick Ewing and, uh, you know, some of the some of the other athletes from different sports. And um, 
the uh, and I'm trying to remember the the football player is a really good friend with Michael Jordan and uh, and uh, how his name escapes me now. I, he he married a television star. Uh, used to be on the Cosby Show. Felicia, oh Ahmad Rashad. That's oh her. okay. Yeah. Felicia Rashad. And uh, uh, anyway, so and they had some uh, points on the field with markers. And if you hit a ball, because they thought some of these guys might not hit home runs, or maybe none of them will hit a home run. So we better have some different rules. So if you hit it this far, you got a few points. You hit it that far, you got more points, things like that. And uh, and so Jordan came up, and it wasn't pretty. You know, the greatest athlete of the time, or the greatest basketball player of all time, superstar. And, and he looked helpless with a bat in his hands. I always thought of that later on when he decided to – try to play professional baseball. It's it sort of a, it was kind of sweet really because it, 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 his dad loved baseball and they used to play ball as when Jordan was a kid. And his dad had, had, had died and uh, almost as a tribute to his dad, he thought if my dad could have worked it the way he wanted it, I would have been a major league baseball player, not an NBA player. And so now he went and he tried and he and he went to double A. I gave him a lot of credit. He was what was he, 31 years old already. And he had not been playing baseball all that time. So the, the odds were stacked against him. And when he went to play, all I could see in my mind was him and that little celebrity home run derby at Camden Yards. Because man, it was it, he could not swing the bat. And I remember he hit a little pop fly finally, and it didn't quite reach the first little uh number out there so and i said close enough five points for michael jordan and the crowd cheered you know so and i'm just I'm trying to have fun with it as the the uh, you know the host on the field and ahmad rashad came over to me sort of on the sly and he says hey uh you know we all have a bet about who's going to win this thing so you give him credit for things like that it could cost the rest of his money and he's not he doesn't deserve it you know <laughs> now so, it's getting serious. There's money on it. You guys bet on this celebrity home run derby. <laughs> <laughs> it's Michael. Of course he did. <laughs> so uh, later on, 1994, uh, there was a strike. Uh, you know, and, and it was the bad old days and the the owners versus players and, and the war that had been going on for such a long, long time. And and you know, I don't even want to talk about it. I but was in that war room. You were, and and uh, and it, it was bloody. It was it was not pleasant, and it hurt the game a lot. But that was the year that Michael Jordan played Double A baseball for Birmingham. I guess it was right. the Birmingham yeah. Barons, maybe. And yep. uh, his manager was uh, Terry Francona. Tito Francona, yeah, Terry Francona was his manager. So now the strike is going on and we have a Sunday and there's no Sunday night baseball game to do. We go down to Memphis. Birmingham was playing. They had the Memphis team that was in double A at that time. It was Tim McCarver Stadium, the old ballpark yeah. in Memphis. And ESPN decided we should go do that game. You and Joe will do that game. And we'll see Michael Jordan play. And we're like, oh, cool. That's a great idea. So we go down there. And wouldn't you know it, the night before, Jordan is playing left field. He makes a diving catch attempt, jams his thumb, can't play because he can't really grip the bat properly. <laughs> so we're, we're, 
wait a minute. We came down here just to see Michael Jordan play. Right. And the reason we're here, no longer, he can't play. So uh, he did do a, a, a long interview with us. So we got a lot of sound bites that we could play during the game with Michael Jordan. And we had a lot of big league players. Jeff Bagwell, I remember, was one of the big stars who came on and, and several others via satellite that came on during that game uh, anyway. But the, the reason I'm telling the story was I talked to Terry Francona ahead of time. I said, you know, I'm looking at Jordan's numbers, and this is August already. It's late in that double-A season because they were uh, around Labor Day. The season was going to be over. And we're just uh, like, uh, I don't know, three weeks away from that or, or whatever. I said, he's hitting 205, and he's only got five home runs or four home runs, whatever it was. And you're hitting him eighth or ninth every night, but he's got 53 RBIs. How is that? And he said, well, you know, it sounds crazy because he got no experience. And yet you put a runner at second or third or base, whatever. If there are RBIs out there, he elevates. He has that ability to elevate his game. He gets better and he knocks those guys in. So that kind of gave me goosebumps to hear that story for a guy who is new to the game and it looked like he had everything stacked against him. And yet you put the game on the line or you needed to get those guys home. He was going to find a way to, to get that done. Michael Jordan. And I think the, uh, the, the cool thing about Jordan as a ball player, uh, after the strike was over, when Sosa and McGuire were hitting all those home runs. So what's that? 98. Uh, at the end of the season, near the end of the season, uh, we do a game at, at Wrigley Field in Chicago uh, to see Sammy Sosa. And I think the NFL season had started, so we, we weren't going to have a Sunday night game. So we did a Sunday afternoon game at Wrigley to see if yeah, to see Sammy Sosa, check in with him. And Michael Jordan came on with us. There was a rain delay late in that game. And Michael Jordan was at the park. So he came on with me and Joe which was you know, so nice of him and so appreciated. And the question I had from him is, what's the main thing you know about the game now, having played a full season of professional baseball, that you didn't know as just a fan of the game or as somebody who followed the game? And immediately, he didn't even think about it. He says, hitters count. And uh, hitters count? And he says, yeah, when the, you know, it's, it's two and oh, or three and one and what, what not. And how you can just now sit in a pitch that had never occurred to him until he actually played the game. And, uh, so that was a sort of an unexpected uh, comment because I think you anticipate anybody who's ever played professional baseball, that they've known that forever about you know, those kind of account and how you want to get to that count and so on and so forth. And hitters count and, um, uh, and Joe was like uh, shaking his head, like, "What? That's <laughs> that's right. it? That's the main thing you learned?" <laughs> so, so Joe had known that since he was twelve, I think. But uh, anyway, so uh, for me, that was always one of the great things to see Jordan attempt that. I gave him so much credit for that because I thought he was doomed; it, it could not happen. And yet, he, in that way, his numbers were not good. He had success, and uh, the other part of it was that he even tried it at the height of his powers as the greatest basketball player on the planet and maybe the greatest basketball player there ever was. And uh, so I gave him so much credit for that. And because he was Michael Jordan, it put a spotlight on 
how hard it is what you guys do. Hitting a baseball uh, that gets thrown so hard and has so much movement and they change speeds on you, you have so little time to read and react. Uh, that put a spotlight on how that is probably the single most difficult thing to do in all of professional sports. And, and, and I think that underscored it. Even Michael Jordan, as great as he was, as great an athlete as he was, did not exceed at a high level any kind of expectations. It was just too hard. And, uh, you know, and it's not that it's easy what, what he was doing on an NBA court, but, you know, baseball, you get, what, four at-bats? Sometimes you get five. Uh, one time you, 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 the pitch looks good, you start to swing, and then you say, no, no, and you check your swing, and then the ball glances off the bat and bounces back to the pit, and you lose that at-bat. Uh, so sometimes they never throw you a strike or, you know, it's, it, it, that's the only shot you get. But now in the NBA, Michael Jordan, they can just keep getting the ball to him, right? He might take 25 or 30 shots in a game. Uh, the quarterback, he's going to take every snap. He might throw 40 passes or 45 passes, handing it off, you know, take, running the ball. Uh, you only get those four or five opportunities every day. And that's it uh, for your game. And, uh, so I think I always was looking to somehow underscore how difficult a task that was. One night we, uh, we tried to time, we picked up the moment the ball left the fingertips of the pitcher to the moment that the batter made his first move to start a swing. It was about one fifth of a second, 0.22 seconds was the average. And the pitcher that, that was throwing was maybe throwing 93-mile-an-hour fastballs. Uh, and that's the amount of time that you had, those hitters had, to not just get off a swing, but to read the pitch, all the things that you guys can do. Is, that, is it a fastball? Is it in my zone? Is it in the strike zone at all? Is it a breaking ball? One-fifth of a second to put all that information together and decide, okay, yes, I'm going to swing. Not, not a couple of minutes. <laughs> Let me get my slide rolled out here. Let me get my calculator. Let me see if this is the one I should be going after. One so the next day, I, you know, that we tried this, it was in Minnesota. I get back with the Giants and JT Snow comes up to me, says, you know, I was watching that game last night. You guys had this timing and like, 0.22, less than a quarter of a second to get the swing off and read all that stuff. And I started thinking to myself, how do I do that? It's pretty remarkable. And I, I said, well, how do you? <laughs> he says, well, I have no answer. I couldn't figure it out. The only thing I could say is I've been doing it my whole life. All of us big league hitters have been doing that kind of thing our whole lives. And it's just, you read and react. And somehow, because we've always done that, we're able to do it. But for me, that's a superhuman caliber kind of a thing to do. And you know, in the, in the Olympics, they they put a camera on a on a you know a, a slalom skier, and he's going down the the mountain at you know incredible speeds. And and when you see him from his point of view with that camera on his head, you see how spectacular it is, how superhuman it is. And I was always looking for a way to show how superhuman 
being able to hit a baseball is at a high level and have a really good season because I think it's underappreciated. You see that center field camera and it makes it look easy. It's all compressed. The guy swings at one, it's, you know, it's, it's up here. And you're thinking, oh, what's the, what's the matter with him? He's swinging at a bad ball like that, a high one. And, and the real question is, how is it that they don't just swing at every pitch that gets thrown? Because it gets thrown so hard and you have to do it so fast. So uh, anyway, so I was, I was kind of proud of our efforts that night to try to underscore how difficult it is and really superhuman it is. But for me, Michael Jordan underscored that better than, than anything we showed ever could. Jordan, unbelievable. I'll touch on that real quick. I always tell that story, John. You're the first person I've heard that said what was impressive was the 52 ribbies. Okay, because I, I remember as a player watching Michael going, okay, first of all, there's no chance he's going to be a big leaguer with that swig. Now, secondarily, what are what are his numbers? I looked at his numbers at the end of the year. It's not like he went to some rinky-dink league. He was in the Southern League. That's a respectable league, double A. He did drive in over 50 runs. And you think about it, there's a lot of guys that do this for a living, that signed professional contracts that were high in the draft, that never drove in 52 runs in a minor league season. Yet, Michael just steps from the court to double A and drives in 52. That's off the charts impressive for me now he's probably one of the worst hitters in the league but the fact is how would i be if you put me in a bulls uniform how many how many points am i going to score tonight so so it's all relative and i always thought i think that's a great point you brought up the runs he drove in hitting as a whole he wasn't hitting cleanup where all the on base guys are on base all the time you know if you make contact at all you might drive in a run by accident he's hitting eighth and ninth yeah, and, uh, I don't even know how many it's guys impressive. he had on base a lot. It's impressive. It's 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 more impressive than people give it credit. For. Put it that way. Indeed.